Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the WREL Daily Download. I'm Ashley Talley, and today's deep dive conversation is with Travis Fain, one of our NC Capital reporters. Travis, we are going to be talking about the year that was in North Carolina politics. It was um, quite a year. Yeah, yeah, I hope you brought a list because, you know, my brain is just smashed full with 2023 and I'm prepared to empty it and never think about it again. <laughs> um, yes, many things. Um, Medicaid, abortion, Bethwood, Trisha Cotham, gerrymandering, uh, Supreme Court cases, so many things. Let's talk first about the things that affect the most people. What do you think the biggest change in North Carolina was that affects the most North Carolinians? So long term, I think you could make an argument for a few things, but let's start with Medicaid expansion. You know, for 13 years, ever since Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act passed, Democrats in North Carolina have been trying to expand Medicaid, which is a taxpayer-funded program to provide health insurance uh, to the extremely poor. Like right Before Medicaid expanded, the only people who really got Medicaid were children, uh, people who were you know, senior citizens, uh, and also probably had a disability. Like If you had any sort of job, even if it paid almost nothing, and you were an adult, you almost certainly, if you were able-bodied, you, you did not have Medicaid. Now, with the expansion... It's going to cover what what we kind of generally think of as, as as the working poor, people who make a little bit of money but cannot their job doesn't provide insurance and they cannot afford insurance on their own even with government subsidies through Obamacare. So Medicaid expansion covers them and the idea is like something something like six hundred thousand people in the state will qualify and will have health insurance. It's, that's huge. That how many how how much more impactful uh, can you really get? Totally. I remember when one person that Laura has talked to, um, his income was seven dollars too high to to qualify for Medicaid before this. So you know he you know was missing out on lots of treatments that he needed. Um, what else? First of all, what else do we get along with Medicaid? Don't we get a bunch of funding as well? And tell me how the deal came about that finally got this through. Oh, absolutely. So Medicaid is funded. Yeah, mostly by the federal government. Uh, that'll be billions of dollars a year. There's also a hospital assessment, so it's a tax on hospital visits that matches the federal money, matches a very small part of it. Most of it just coming straight from federal taxpayers. Uh, the federal government also, because Democrats were recently in control of Congress, they're not in control of the U.S. House now, but back during the pandemic they were, and one of the pandemic bills had, I think it was like $1.7 billion for North Carolina. They passed it for a bunch of different states, That what we call the sweetener, where we're just going to give you money if you expand Medicaid. Uh, and again, North Carolina's portion was something like $1.7. We're going to spend a lot of that on mental health care. We're going to build new facilities, including one in the Triangle that is basically a mental health hospital for kids. We're going to try to chip away at that problem with a bunch of that money. And uh, yeah, this is billions and billions and billions of dollars for the foreseeable future. That we were previously leaving on the table until now. Right, right. It was there. We're paying federal taxes. The federal government is borrowing money uh, because we are we do deficit spend in this country. 
and other states, we were, I think, the 40th state to accept Medicaid expansion. So 39 other states were, were getting the benefit, and we weren't. That, you asked, you know, what what eventually got this over the finish line? That's a big part of it. But also in, in rural Republican areas, sheriffs, really Republican sheriffs were like, why are we, why are we not doing this? Can you, you know, I've got these jails and I've got mentally ill people, people with health problems and they're coming into the jails and we're de facto mental health hospitals. Can, can you, you know, this money is sitting here. Can you please help, help us out? And Republican lawmakers, it was, it was somewhat grassroots the way this bubbled up to where Republicans went from dead set against this democratic priority to passing it within about a year and a half. That's pretty amazing because I do feel like it had been on the table so many times and something always happened where it, it fell through. So I didn't know that about the the grassroots element of it. That's interesting. Um, still in the healthcare, healthcare sphere, um, also impacting a lot of people, abortion and the abortion laws here. Uh, how did those change this year? So we went from a 20-week ban to a 12-week ban. Uh, which doesn't actually cover a lot of abortions. Something like 90% plus of abortions happen before the 12-week mark anyway. So uh, people, uh, pro, pro-life pro folks, were, were still kind of upset about that. They wanted a six-week bill. But what the bill also does is it sets up new hoops to jump through if you get an abortion before the 12-week mark. And one of them is, for a, a many years now, more than a decade, I think, think uh, you have had to, to get an abortion, had to have a conversation with your doctor, I believe 48 hours in advance, some period of time before the actual pill is usually not a procedure, but usually a pill that you take uh, for a medical abortion, or excuse me, for a drug induced abortion. You, you had to have that conversation. Well, now that has to be under this bill in person. Uh, and then of course you have to go in person to have the drug administered. And then you're supposed to, I believe 72 hours after that, have a third in-person visit with the doctor. So that's three visits all in person, which may not mean much unless you put yourself in the shoes of, or you are a woman living in Richmond County, let's say County, where there is no abortion clinic. Uh, And I'm, I'm I'm sorry, I pulled that. That's an example. I just mean a rural County where there may not be an abortion clinic and maybe you don't make a lot of money and maybe it's hard for you to get time off of work. Well, can you get an abortion at all at this point if you've got to go see the doctor at least twice and the way the law uh, reads three times? That was obviously very um, divisive. I, th- I think the vote was pretty much split along party lines, wasn't it? I, I believe so. Hey, we're, we're reaching back. And I mean, I think we're going about to talk about Trisha Cotham because Republicans were able to pass that bill and some others because a Democrat, a Charlotte area Democrat named Trisha Cotham, who, among other things, had been very pro-choice in the past and had given an impassioned speech about her own experience in this area. She changed from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party, and that was the one seat flip that Republicans needed to get veto-proof majorities. They already had one in the Senate. They were one seat short in the House. She's in the House. She flips. Now it's a veto-proof majority. Governor Roy Cooper, a Democrat, even if he vetoes a bill, Republican lawmakers are able to make it law Regardless of that, you know, they, they can just they can overturn his veto, which is what happened. Exactly what happened. I think it happened 19 times this year. So we also had some transgender uh, bills uh, uh, limiting, you know, uh, medical care that that young people can get people under 18 minors can get uh, limiting the ability of transgender kids to play on a sports team uh, in high school and I believe in middle school uh, and college, I believe. 
And then where there were so a few other bills where it was kind of like a, a power fight between the Republican lawmakers, the Republican-controlled General Assembly, and the governor. But yeah, 19 times. Wow, I didn't I didn't know that number. Um, we we've talked about sort of the big impact things, and then there were also some political intrigues. After the break, let's talk about those. We'll be right back. Jake, I'm getting worried. My house hunt's taking longer than expected. We've made so many offers and keep losing out. You could really use the JAG Advantage. What's the JAG Advantage? The Jim Allen Group, number one real estate team in the state since 1996 with the largest inventory of home sites in the Triangle, 11,000. And they rep more than 65 communities. The Jim Allen Group? Oh, I get it. The JAG Advantage. Score with the Jim Allen Group at thejagadvantage.com. Equal housing opportunity. Missed fall enrollment? It's your time to shine at William Peace University. WPU is enrolling for the spring semester at our co-ed university in the heart of Raleigh. We offer more than 30 majors, including esports and gaming administration, simulation and game design, and interactive design. Our classes are taught by full professors, and our small class size means you get one-on-one instruction and immersive learning. Plus, we connect students with internships. William Peace University, your time to shine. Get started today at peace.com. All right, we're back with Travis Fain, uh, NC Capital reporter for WRAL. We've we're talking about uh, 2023 in North Carolina politics. We've had you know a lot of big policy changes here, but there have been a lot of intrigue, some some political dramas, if you will. Um, Let's talk about Beth Wood. She's been a subject on this podcast, obviously, before as, as news develops with her. Can you give me sort of a big picture glance at how that all worked out? I wondered if you were going to start with the affair that I'm sure we're going to talk about. or if you I was going to end s- with that. Start with the not DUI. Uh, but it, So Beth Wood is at a holiday party this time last year, so December of 2022. She's downtown Raleigh. Uh, kind of a re- guy named Rufus Edmondson, who's a well-known politician from years gone by. Uh, and she goes and gets in her car, her state-issued car, that'll be important in a minute, and is driving through Raleigh, uh, downtown Raleigh, where the event was, and turns a corner and just runs slap up on a parked car. I mean, you know, you have to imagine one tire up on top of the hood of the other car, I think, and just in the air, car's left running, she leaves the scene, we have video that we get later of her being ushered back into the building where the party was. Um, so the question is obviously, hey, were you, you maybe were you drinking at that party before you ran your car slap up on top of another one in downtown Raleigh, even though it was parked on the side of the road? And she wouldn't answer that question for a while. She did get charged with, uh, you know, leaving the scene of an accident. That goes through the criminal process. Uh, you know, I believe it was a mis- misdemeanor ultimately that she was uh, convicted of. She acknowledges, hey, I had two. It's always two. I had, I had two glasses of wine at that party, but she never faces a DUI charge. Well, I think that probably didn't sit well with some people uh, because she was going to continue. She continued to be in office as the state auditor. She was going to run for reelection. And then she got indicted for misuse of a state vehicle because the State Bureau of Investigation came in and looked more deeply at her vehicle use in general. So not just that night, but in general. And she had been going, using it for a lot of personal stuff. Now, what she said was, you know, there, there's a reimbursement process that happens for because a lot of state officials, particularly high-ranking state officials, they get a take-home vehicle, 
And so they're, they're supposed to reimburse for that. She said, I was reimbursed more because I knew I was using it for personal. But the bad blood had kind of already simmered enough. And uh, ultimately, she was pressured, I'm sure. Uh, and she resigned. We have a new state auditor. She won't be running for reelection. And that all kind of came to a head in the last couple of weeks. And, you know, any state employee or state executive who got who, who this happened to would get in trouble. But I think it's the irony of the fact that she, her actual position is holding other people responsible for what they're supposed to be doing. Right, which she will not let you forget for a moment if you talk to her. I mean, you know, she, the, the state auditor's office has done under uh, Auditor Wood a number of investigations about vehicle usage. I mean, that's a pretty common, pretty ripe area uh, for, for those kind of reviews. And so, yeah, so... Yeah, so just last week she um, ended her Wake County. Uh, she was also charged by them, by Wake, Wake County. Yeah, so. she was ultimately indicted by a grand jury for two counts, I believe it was, of misuse of a state vehicle. And she, you know, there's a plea deal in place and she's not going to serve jail time. She's got a probated sentence and, a, you know, like a $1,500 fine, something like that. But I mean, the big punishment was. Well, you're not going to be state auditor anymore. I, you know, she, I don't know that the plea arrangement had, you know, had any sort of requirement that she resigned, but she resigned after she was indicted. Right around the same time. Yeah, understood. All right. So in other North Carolina drama, we are one of the few states, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but that still allows for lawsuits for alienation of affection. Yeah, that's right. And what that means is, I mean, typically because it's a sexist law, I think people would would, would pretty accurately argue, uh, a husband accuses another man of stealing his wife, essentially. Uh, and that's what happened here in North Carolina with the Speaker of the House, Tim Moore, uh, the Republican Speaker of the House. He was accused by a jilted husband of having an affair with this man's wife. Uh, it happened. Uh, I, I think that the marriage involved was not a happy one, it seems. I mean, it's hard to kind of put yourself in people's shoes and understand what's going on, but there was a lot going on. Let's put it that way. There was some degree of separation uh, the Speaker of the House himself is a divorced man, you know, and he said, hey, look, you know, she said she was separated. I believed her. We had a we had a relationship. Turned out it was an affair. But, you know, it was kind of off and on um, what I do in my business. What I do is my business. Well, yes and no. She also was a state employee. And over the period of the affair, got a number of raises. Now, she wasn't uh, a state employee for the legislature. Tim Moore did not have any direct supervisory authority or control over her raises. But. When you're a state entity that wants things from the General Assembly, maybe you keep someone around if you know about the relationship. This was all, of course, of course, denied, but it was all questionable, too. Uh, Moore has seemed to shake this off like water off a duck's back, like a number of scandals in his past. He's running for Congress and probably going to win uh, a Charlotte area congressional seat this year. So there were really no repercussions for him uh, career-wise or legally-wise. There was, there was nothing. I think I think the alienation suit was actually dropped, wasn't it? It was settled. I don't yeah. know the terms of that settlement. They weren't released. Uh, I'm going to assume some money changed hands there, but I don't know. Uh, other than that, the speaker had to answer a bunch of questions, a bunch of you know annoying reporters like me uh, in his face for a couple of weeks. But yeah, kind of came and went faster than you might think it would based on the fact pattern. And in... Some form of irony, um, Scott Lasseter, the man who accused him of such, is now running for office as well. Yeah, Scott Lasseter, the the, the husband in this equation, he had been a, he is a politician. Uh, he was on the Apex Town Council, 
when this happened, he was the soil supervisor, a soil supervisor for Wake County, which is like the very last thing on your ballot that you maybe have noticed before, but probably not put a lot of thought into it. He's running for the, uh, I believe, the legislature now here in here in Wake County. So, yeah, yeah, I think that's right. It's interesting. Um, one of the things that will affect North Carolina and um, most of its voters for the foreseeable future is the redistricting that happened this year as well and the the legal battles that have been um, fought since then. Can you explain that a little to us? I know it's a massive issue. Yeah. So, I mean, y'all are probably all familiar with the phrase gerrymandering, and there are multiple ways to gerrymander. We're going to talk about partisan gerrymandering. So I draw the map. There are 120 state house seats. There are 14 congressional seats in North Carolina, and there's 50 state senate seats in North Carolina. So I have to draw the districts for all of those. And the people who draw them are whoever controls the General Assembly, which right now is the Republican Party. Republican lawmakers have, as we discussed earlier, super majorities that kind of do whatever they want on this. And so if you're a Republican and you're drawing the map for the next election, might you draw it so that Republicans win? Because you know how people vote, right? There, There's all this advanced computer software that tells you, all right, if you draw the lines like this, you know, based on the last presidential election, 59% of the people that you drew into that district will vote for a Republican. So you can just kind of, it's called packing and cracking. You crack Democrats so that they're spread out. If you can't do that, you pack them all into one district. So you make a district that's 90% Democratic. Uh, and then that allows you to draw really good Republican districts all around it, like five or six of them right around it. So, and that, so that, that was done. That's what I'm coming to here. That was done this year again. So. Right. Absolutely. And again, correct me if I'm wrong, but it is not illegal to draw the boundaries for political gain. It is not. No, not in North Carolina, certainly. So uh, last year, I think in 2022, forgive me if I get the date wrong, the U.S. Supreme Court dealt with this issue and said, you know what? Federal courts aren't going to get involved in this. This is not a federal court issue. Uh, we will throw things out if you uh, gerrymander based on race to try to discriminate against voters of a certain race. But if it's for political gain, that is the legislature's prerogative and state court's prerogative. All right. So the state court part was really important. Back also in 2022, the state Supreme Court outlawed partisan gerrymandering in North Carolina. But then we had an election in November of 2022, and a bunch of Republican justices won. So now our state Supreme Court went from being controlled by Democrats who outlawed partisan gerrymandering to being controlled by Republicans who very quickly took another look early in 2023 here and said, you know what? They were wrong. We're reversing the the precedent. And now the General Assembly can essentially do anything they want to with partisan redistricting partisan gerrymandering. Now, I will note, we've, we've said a couple of times that Republicans already had a supermajority and that they were only one seat short in the House. That was on maps that the Democratic state Supreme Court had blessed. So Republicans already, just based on electoral math, where people live, how people vote, had strong control of the General Assembly on maps that, according to the state Supreme Court, were not gerrymandered. But now they're allowed to gerrymander, so... Guess what's going to happen? I, I don't know that the supermajorities are going to get much stronger in 2024 and beyond, but I think you can pretty much book that those supermajorities will be either protected or very close to it. Republicans will continue to control the General Assembly of North Carolina for the foreseeable future. The only question is whether or not whoever's governor has a narrow margin by which they have the power to veto laws. That is the only um area of power that they could potentially retain when it comes to passing laws yeah right 
um, much more about the next year ahead in another WREL Daily Download coming up soon. Thanks to Travis Fain for joining me today, and thank you for listening to the WREL Daily Download. You can find more podcasts from WREL News at WREL.com, and you search podcasts from sports to true crime. There are plenty of shows to keep you informed and entertained. Thanks for listening. At WakeMed MyCare 365, we deliver convenience others only talk about every day of the year. Primary care and urgent care under one roof. Multiple locations, virtual visits, walk-in or schedule an appointment online. From annual physicals and routine care to sinus infection, strep, or the flu, we couldn't be more convenient. Learn more about our kind of care and our kind of convenience at wakemed.org.